We're good? Okay, welcome to the Logically Faithful Show. I am Calhoun Swice, and I'm here with a very special guest, one of my intellectual heroes, Dr. Hugh Ross. Good to meet you. Thank you for joining me. You're welcome. So the Logically Faithful Show, as many of you maybe followed me in the past, is to engage culture redemptively and address suffering productively. One of the main ways we do that is finding evidence for our faith that's solid, grounded, logical, and consistent. And Dr. Ross, this has been part of your journey in your life as well. It is, yes. Why do you do what you do? Well, when I came to Christ, I realized that part of the commitment of being a Christian is to share my faith with other people. I mean, that just came across really clear after a two-year study of the Bible. That that's what Christianity is all about. And this started around eight years old or so? Well, I started studying science when I was seven. I mean, astronomy. I knew from the age of eight, astrophysics would be my future career. And it was through my studies in astronomy, I realized the universe must have a beginning. And was at age 17, I began to search for that beginner of the universe. First through the writings of the great philosophers, especially mm -hmm. Immanuel Kant and René Descartes. Yes. And uh, after reading quite a bit of their writings, I realized they had the wrong concepts of space and time. And that's when I said, I think I'll look at the world's holy books. Mm. And I took the principle of putting each of those books in the best possible interpretive light. Uh, but when I did that with the Quran, the Hindu Vedas, the Buddhist commentaries, I found plenty of scientific and historical errors. And so I said, this wouldn't be from the one that created the universe. I'm interested to see what errors that you talked about. And I imagine there's so many religions in the world. I imagine you touched up the top seven main ones. Well, for example, when I went through the Hindu Vedas, they uh -huh. talked about a reincarnating universe, where the universe goes through these repeated cycles for the 4.32 billion year period. And I realized that number was wrong, mm. but also recognized the universe had an entropy measure that was 100 million times too high to permit any possible mechanical rebound of the universe. And uh, so I said, that can't be right. I noticed the Buddhists kind of borrowed these Hindu ideas into their cosmology. Mm -hmm. So I said, that can't be right either. And when I looked at the Quran, I realized this is written in a very vague, repetitive way. And that mm -hmm. doesn't seem like the way I'd expect the creator of the universe to communicate. And it seemed to have an air of spirituality that was really overdone. And then I found this one account of creation, which talked about the seven different levels of heaven. Yes. Uh, but it was all astronomically incorrect. And so I said, that can't be it. You're talking about Dante? Or... Well, <laughs> it's interesting. There's a creation text in the Quran okay. that talks about these seven mm -hmm. levels. And it, where he, it actually implies that the stars are closer to us than the planets. Okay. It's like even with a naked eye, we know that's incorrect. You don't need a telescope to figure out that's incorrect. Oh, yeah. And so... And I did, and I tell people I didn't really get to know Christians mm -hmm. well until I was 27, but I did get to see two from 30 feet away when I was 11 years old. And these were two businessmen that came to a public school okay. and put a couple of boxes on our teacher's desk and left. But in those boxes were Gideon Bibles. Mm -hmm. So after having gone through the philosophical writings of Kant and, and, and Descartes and going through these holy books, I finally grabbed that book that had been collecting dust on my bookshelf, pulled down the Gideon Bible, and realized right away how different this book was. I'd be interested to see what is it that drew you to that Bible? What 
process was it that the Holy Spirit used to ignite the fire to move your hand to get over there? Well, when I went through the world's holy books, yes. I kind of knew ahead of time that the biggest challenge to disprove would be the Bible. Okay. So on purpose, I kind of left that to the end. Uh, and then when I picked it down and began to go through it, I said, this is just so different. It's detailed, it's specific, mm -hmm. it's not trying to be vague or esoteric. Okay. There's no appeal to intellectual snobbery. And right on the very first page, you've got this detailed account of creation. And so as an astronomy student, I went through it all, and after four hours realized everything here is in the correct order, and it's correctly stated. What also got my attention is how carefully it followed the scientific method. Mm. Now, I was naive. I didn't realize that the scientific method came from the pages of Scripture. But the fact that it so carefully followed that method, that really impressed me. I'd be interested to see exactly what you mean by that. But let me um, give some introduction here, back, back, background. So you have a degree in physics from the University of British Columbia, mm -hmm. the National Research Council of Canada Fellowship as well. That was, that's great. Um, you have a PhD in astronomy. Right. How has your study of astronomy specifically impacted your understanding of scripture? Well, it's actually part of my conversion experience in that when I was going through the Bible, Number one, I realized all the events of creation in Genesis 1 are in the correct order, correctly described. A lot of astronomy is in there. Mm -hmm. uh, but I also was amazed how the Bible described the fundamental features of Big Bang cosmology thousands of years before any astronomer even had a clue that the universe had these features. So that was the first indication I had that this book, the Bible, had predictive power. Mm. The power to future scientific discoveries. In your writing, you give these um, falsifiable mm -hmm. uh, methodologies for scripture, for uh, understanding the age and the mm -hmm. um, creation model. Expand on one of those for us to help us, because many of my listeners think in a scientific or a rationalistic perspective, and they seem to find truth in the scientific sphere. Some people, sadly, think that's the only place to find truth, which is a contradiction in itself, because truth itself is not scientific per se. It's beyond, it's, it touches on that. Well, one of the things that really impressed me with going through the Bible is how many times it gave this two books doctrine. Okay. The idea that God reveals himself through scripture, the mm -hmm. Bible, but also through the book of nature. Mm. And the exhortation is for to use the book of nature to bring people to the book of scripture. So as I was going through this as a non-believer, just seeing how much the Bible emphasized its dependence on what God has revealed through the book of nature. It realized I'm holding the only book that gets it right, where there's a perfect concordance between the book of nature and the book of scripture. You said perfect concordance. Yes. And there was a, I had not yet found any place in the Bible where I see a statement that's discordant of what we see revealed in the book of nature Moreover, what I see in Job and Psalms is that the more we study science, mm -hmm. the more we study nature, the more evidence will uncover for the supernatural handiwork of God. That's kind of the heart and core of the ministry I've found and reasons to believe, is to make the point that the book of nature is ever-expanding. I mean, every day there are dozens of research papers published pushing back the frontiers of knowledge. Mm -hmm. 
And as we push back those frontiers, we're seeing more and more scientific evidence for what the Bible has taught for thousands of years. Help us out here. Okay. Give me one or two top evidences that you've seen tip the scale for some people who are on the razor's edge. Well, I'm actually here in Chicago giving a talk where I'm going to actually talk about that very thing. Okay. How, for example, uh, when I first picked up Genesis 1, I noticed that it made the point that uh, the earth starts off with only oceans on the surface, no continents. Hmm. And how in creation day three, we see this transformation from a water world to a world where you've got continents and oceans coexisting. And I knew as a young scientist that you needed that to recycle the nutrients for advanced life. And so I also noticed in Genesis 1, you don't get advanced life until after that event. However, at that time, the reigning paradigm in geophysics was that the continents had always been here. So I says, okay, uh, but I also realized in looking at those books, they really didn't have any data to support that conclusion. It was an assumption. So I said, I wonder how this will play out. And when I was a sophomore physics student, <coughs> I enrolled in the first course I think taught anywhere on plate tectonics. Okay. It was uh, taught by two of the three people that launched the discipline. So I said, I'm going to take that course. And uh, they talked about how the continents had been gradually spreading over the face of the Earth. And so they had this kind of linear thing, mm -hmm. where they basically said somewhere around 5 to 7% is where we start, and then it gets up to the present 29%. Mm -hmm. I asked the professors, is it possible it starts at zero? Because that's what the Bible says. And they said, yeah, anywhere between zero and 10% will work. Mm -hmm. And then in the year 2000, several papers got published which basically said we have less than 1% continental mass coverage for the first couple of billion years, and then it suddenly jumps up to, to about 20%, and then it gradually goes up to the present 29 And a few months ago, a paper got published which said the first great oxygenation event jumped the continental land masses from 1% up to 27%. We only got 2% growth thereafter. So what we're seeing is the more we learn about the uh, record of nature, the geophysics, the stronger fit we get with what Genesis 1 has taught for thousands of years. And likewise on Creation Day 4, a paper just months ago got published where they, a bunch of physicists did an experiment saying, I wonder what the oxygen content does to the transparency of the Earth's atmosphere because we know that the oxygen jumped from 1% up to 8% okay. just before the Avalon and Cambrian explosions of animal life. And so they did a lab experiment basically saying if you go from less than 1% up to 8%, the atmosphere goes from so hazy where creatures on the surface can't see the sun, moon, and stars to where they can perfectly see them. And so I'm so these are evidences that you're saying that indicate what it talks about in Genesis. Well, at Creation Day 4, it says, uh, let there be the great lights, so they'll serve as signs to mark seasons, days, and years. Okay. And Genesis 1-2 says we're to understand the account of creation from the point of view of the surface of the earth. So it's making the point that on the surface of the earth, mm -hmm. Creatures can't see these signs no. to determine what season it is or what you know, year we're in. 
Yeah, and that explains the distinction and disjunction between Genesis 1, creation of size, and the gentleman Genesis. Well, like creation day one, it says, let light. there be light. Right. And as for the atmosphere, it goes from opaque mm -hmm. to translucent. So the light can get through, but it's so hazy on the surface of the earth because of the lack of oxygen, the creatures on the surface of the earth can't see the objects that are responsible for the light. Okay, so but on day four, they do. Okay. And notice, it's the animals that have to know where the sun, moon, and stars are in the sky to regulate their biological clocks. So they don't show up till creation day five. They don't. And all this has happened in just the past few months. Right, right. Interesting. So. I, I want to cap on that a little bit. Let me pause for a moment. Sure. Okay. Let's see how we're looking here. We're moving. I'll be cutting all this out. This looks good. Let's see if I can get it a little closer. <coughs> all right. There we are. Okay, you mentioned something earlier in our conversation, the Cambrian explosion. Yes. Let's talk about evolution. Yeah. It is a contentious issue back during the monkey trial. Um, I've done debates at the college level mm -hmm. where professors have actually shut down the events or tried to shut down the events. My own colleagues. Mm -hmm. uh, I realize that the, the secular arena has shifted. Mm -hmm. In the past, the people who are in power were the religious elite who are not allowing people to teach evolution. Now it's a secular elite who are not allowing creation to be taught. Right. So it's, it depends on who's in power to, uh, to disciple free speech in this matter. However, I, see, I think some people have a point. You don't want to have people up there advocating, let's say, um, the, the flat earth model. Right. Or you don't want people talking about the, um, the, the lack of a genocide that happened in World, World War II with the Jewish Holocaust. There are people who advocate this. Right. You don't want to give those people a platform. Why should the scientific enterprise, which is vastly secular in its outlook, and the methodology is naturalistic or methodological naturalism, uh, to say the least, if not even more, mm -hmm. why should they give people in your ministry or your outlook even a hearing? Because you seem to be on the fringe of that. Well, we do Let's get just a touch hearing. on that. Yeah. I mean, we do get a hearing, but we have to reassure the scientists, especially the evolutionary biologists, yes. that we do agree that life has been here for 3.8 billion years. We're not young earth creationists. And we do believe that life began simple and became complex. Where we disagree with them mm -hmm. is that this progression from simplicity to complexity uh, involves not just natural process, but direct supernatural intervention. The blind watchmaker Dawkins yeah. model. And I found that every evolutionary biologist I've engaged quickly agrees with me they do not have a naturalistic explanation for the origin of life. Mm -hmm. And that there are serious problems with trying to explain the history of life from a naturalistic perspective. And so since we're not disagreeing with them about the biological data mm -hmm. or the fossils, they're willing to engage us and entertain the ideas that we have. Okay. And so as, as long as you're not challenging the database, mm -hmm. I think you can get a hearing. But you're challenging the philosophical base. Or challenging their interpretation of the data. Okay. And that's very permissible within science. That's how yeah. science works. I don't even know if they even allow some of that to happen. Because well, sometimes we do run into opposition where we yeah. run into these evolutionary biologists who think that the evidence is so overwhelming, there's no way you can dispute a naturalistic interpretation. 
And I say, well, in that case, what's your answer for the origin of life? And that quickly opens up the conversation. Mm. They readily admit that they're, they're stuck on the origin of life. Now, Dr. Ross, I know this gets old, mm -hmm. but it, it's a constant objection that raises itself every class, every semester for me as a professor when we deal with science. And my colleagues in chemistry, physics, and others hear that as well, the believers, that is. The God and the gaps argument. Mm -hmm. I can't explain the rain, it must be God crying. I can't explain the earthquake, it must be God must be mad at you for something you did. It's always invoking this divine perspective to fill this gap. Right. But the progression of science for the last number of millennia has been filling in these gaps with naturalistic explanations. Yeah, I, so I how I do you deal with this objection? Because my whole point is, it's, 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 in science there are always gaps. Okay. We'll never learn everything. We're limited human beings. Mm -hmm. However, as we push back the frontiers of science, we see what happens to the gaps. Okay, from my perspective, yes. my philosophical perspective, as we push back these frontiers of knowledge, do the gaps in my model get bigger, more problematic? Mm -hmm. Then I probably am not on the pathway to truth. But if the gaps are getting smaller and less problematic, I'm probably on the pathway to truth. And that's why I bring up the origin of life. Because in origin life research, from a naturalistic perspective, the more we learn about the uh, origin of life, the bigger the gaps get for a naturalistic perspective. The more numerous they get, the more problematic they get. And this is widely admitted within the origin of life research community. And it's like, well, since this has been the trend for the past 60 years, maybe you got the wrong model for the origin of life. Maybe you need to consider abandoning a naturalistic model and there's actually some hints of this showing up in the recent scientific literature where you've got these origin of life researchers talking about what they call a hand of God fallacy. It's their language. Mm -hmm. And basically saying we've made amazing advances in the lab right. trying to figure out how we can put different life components together. It's that it only works if you've got a highly skilled biochemist with a lot of funding and technology and if you actually try to duplicate what works in the naturalistic mm -hmm. realm, nothing happens. And so they said, we really need to encourage these original flight researchers in their papers to explain how many times they appeal to the hand of God fallacy. And it's more than a dozen times, and we really don't have a good case for what we're proposing. I want to capitalize on this later, but if you could give me, connect, I can connect with you later. Um, in the show notes, this is some peer-reviewed research. That the things that you referenced earlier? Well, we wound up writing an entire book on the origin of life. Okay. And what's interesting is one of the world's leading atheist origin of life researchers, David Deemer, called us and said, I'd like to write a critical review of your book. Mm. And do I have your permission? We said, we can only benefit. Please right. be as critical as you can. Well, he reviewed the book. It got published in a peer-reviewed journal, Origins of Life and Evolution of the Biosphere. Mm -hmm. And it's available online. People can okay. read the review. Who was the author? David Deemer. David Deemer. Okay. Well, we'll put that in our And the whole point is even atheists recognize that what we're proposing in our book, Origins of Life, uh, is solid with respect to the science. Let's talk about um, the gradual progression of human life from mammalian life, from the mm -hmm. slow mutation and adaptation model from via Darwinian method to what we have in the human species. Well, notice, yeah. The, the genesis models, based on old earth, or simple literal creation reading, seems to say God 
stop the model from animals, it's quickly created man ex nihilo. Yes. You don't seem to follow that model, or do you seem to say there's no, some do. disconnect? Uh, in other words, I do believe that uh, God created human beings de novo, not as a process of common descent, that uh, he created Adam and Eve from the dust of the earth, okay. and were descended from uh, that uh, Adam and Eve. And actually, if you look at the field uh, conservation biology research, mm -hmm. that seems to apply to every mammalian species. I mean, one of the things you notice is that uh, before human beings, there are a little more than 8,000 mammal species on the face of the earth. Today, there's only 4,000. Half of them have gone extinct. And uh, how many new ones have come up to replace them? Zero. Mm -hmm. And these field biology research, uh, research papers basically make the point, if you're dealing with a mammal species, where the adult body size is greater than three kilograms, it will go extinct before it can experience any significant evolution into a different species. Mm -hmm. So it explains why we've seen all this extinction, but no replacement, no speciation. That would now, be interesting to dive into that. So that would mean that the bipedal primates that mm -hmm. preceded us are also special creations, because they're all way bigger than seven kilograms. Well, the man, the size. Neanderthal man. Neanderthals, Homo erectus, right. Australopithecines. And what was amazing is Ian Tattersall, an atheist physical anthropologist, approached us and said, I think I can give you guys some help with this. Because mm -hmm. he says, notice we have no fossil evidence of these bipedal primates in Australia mm -hmm. or North America or South America. We got a whole lot in Africa and to a lesser degree Europe and Asia. And notice that when humans went into Australia and North and South America, they quickly drove to extinction all the large-bodied bird and mammal species they needed to sustain civilization. And hence, the Aborigines in Australia were stuck in the Stone Age and could not develop a large population. And to a lesser degree, the same thing happened in North and South America. But notice in Africa, Europe, and Asia, the extinction rate was much less. And his suggestion was this, that we have this series of bipedal primate species, mm -hmm. each one being a little bit better than the previous one in hunting these large-bodied bird and mammal species, basically training these birds and mammals. When you see tall creatures with weapons in their hands, run. <laughs> yeah. And the point is, in Australia, they didn't run. They got killed off. Mm -hmm. Whereas in Africa, the, well, for example, when humans came into Australia, the extinction rate was more than 94%. In Sub-Saharan Africa, it was only 4.5%. But Sub-Saharan Africa had a dozen different species of bipedal primates that preceded human beings. So basically prepared the animals. And when you see these creatures uh, that are tall, uh, mm -hmm. two legs with weapons in their hands, uh, this is not a good thing, run no, away. You get out. So then the, the concept of the UCA, Universal Common Ancestor, mm -hmm. specifically in the area of mammals, we have chimpanzees, orangutans, others, all having a, a common ancestor. Based on DNA genetical references and a lot of peer-reviewed research showing that this is the case, it's actually one of the, one of the pillars showing that evolution itself seems to be the game, the only game in town. Um, at least from that a, type of evolution. What, what's your a, comment about that? Yeah, that's from a theoretical genetics perspective, mm -hmm. where your theoretical genetics model presumes a common descent 
as a basis for the model. So we point out this is circular reasoning. You presume that the common descent model is the right model, exactly. and then you develop a theoretical genetics model that basically establishes that. And that's circular reasoning. But Dr. Ross, the evidence between the chimpanzee DNA and the human DNA seems to overlap remarkably. Well, it does overlap remarkably because they face the same environmental challenges, so they would have to be the same. I mean, 26% of your DNA is identical to daffodil DNA. And that's because, you know, we have the same metabolic uh, requirements, so you'd expect that similarity. And, uh, and incidentally, I think a lot of the similarity is God-designed, mm -hmm. in the sense that uh, he made the internal organs of the large primates very similar to ours. Okay. And notice you can take an organ out of one of those primates and put them in a human, and it works. Okay. That's because the DNA is so similar. And likewise with mice and rats, mm -hmm. Uh, what's interesting is that the brain chemistry in mice and rats very closely matches the brain chemistry in human beings. But our brain chemistry does not match the brain chemistry of the uh, non-human primates. Mm. And so we're able to use these mice and rats to develop medical advances to help us with uh, you know, human mental disorders like okay. dementia and dyslexia. Mm -hmm. And so I believe God purposely put a lot of this DNA similarity into these non-human animals to help us with our medical uh, you know, uh, research and advances. Mm -hmm. And so all that similarity you see there equally fits a common design model as it does a common descent model. And when we engage our friends who believe that it's common descent, we just say, look, uh, the evidence can go both ways. We need to do research outside of genetics in order to determine which model is correct. It is true that you know 99% of our genome is identical to that of Neanderthals. Yeah, two-thirds part that we can compare. We don't have a complete genome for the Neanderthal. This is not clear-cut evidence that. It's not clear-cut evidence. Universal people, common ancestor. Yeah, just like they say, you know, 95% of our DNA is identical to chimpanzee DNA. Right. In the areas where we can make the comparison. Yes. However, it's what we would anticipate. Uh, you know, given that the chimpanzee is a large primate, mm -hmm. we would expect that you'd have to have DNA very similar to human DNA to manage the organs that we share in common. So it's not all surprising. Uh, from a, it's a design perspective, you would anticipate the same outcome as you would from common descent, which is why when we engage evolutionary biologists, we say, now, if we're talking this having a strictly naturalistic explanation, we would expect the fossil evidence to concur with the genetic evidence. Right. And when you look at these molecular clocks, they're discordant with the fossil clocks. So the fact that you get, and some of the discordance is huge in many cases. And so that tells us that common descent is not the only answer to what we're seeing. So what is the answer? Well, we're actually saying there has to be some supernatural intervention to explain that, that the dichotomy or the uh, discordance we're seeing here. How is this, see as a scientist, someone will say that's, a, that's an answer that, um, that, that goes back to what you mentioned earlier, the fallacy of the God's hand or the, the God in the gap fallacy. You can't explain it so you're invoking a divine hand. Why can't you just wait and keep looking into the natural method to see well, how we do. he did it? The whole point is, as you keep pushing the naturalistic paradigm, you're running into more and more problems 
you're not solving the problems, you're creating more problems. Okay. So going back to the pushing the limits of science. Pushing the limits of science and hey, yeah. if it's going the wrong direction, that tells you you're on the wrong pathway. Okay. So in that sense, gaps are your friend. Mm. What happens to the gaps basically tells you which way you need to go. Okay. Let's shift the conversation, uh, Dr. Ross, let's shift the conversation to the problem of evil, mm -hmm. the problem of suffering. Mm -hmm. Uh, you have colleagues, if I may call them that, uh, who are saying that the problem of evil and suffering and misery in the creation model itself indicates the fall of the first man and first woman, primeval and Adam and Eve. And that itself brought in pain and misery at all levels of creation. Everything to the mice, to the bacterial level, to the uh, animal level, to finally to the human level. And then also brought in tornadoes, volcanoes, and other areas where yeah, there's power. Yeah. You seem to be saying in your writing that that's not the case. That was right. available around before that. Can you explain that to, especially someone maybe who's new in the field, who's understanding this? You have a good God, mm -hmm. a holy being, whose purity we can't even approach. And then you have the, the ripping of flesh at the animal level before even Adam is even on the scene, the suffering at the animal level. And then it comes out later on and it continues. How do you explain it? How do you draw that connection between the loving God and the suffering in the animal kingdom or the creation? Well, model? when I was comparing the different holy books of the world's religions, what I notice is the Bible has a lot of creation content. It's not just one or two texts. Okay. There are dozens of texts, lengthy texts, that deal with the subject of creation. Okay. But every one of those texts links the doctrine of creation with the doctrine of redemption which implies that everything that God creates is for the purpose of redeeming human beings from their sin and evil into a state uh, where they're free of sin, evil, and suffering. Give us one example. Okay. Um, what you notice in uh, 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 Genesis 3.17, okay. as soon as Adam and Eve fall, God says, cursed is the ground of you. Now, he's not saying that uh, the ground was cursed at the moment of creation. He's saying because of your sin, it is now cursed. Mm -hmm. So it's putting the full blame on human behavior. Okay. So the ground hasn't changed. It's human beings that have changed. And so as humans change, they now discover that because of their sin, the ground doesn't produce like it did before because they're not irrigating the right way. Weeding it the right way, they're being impatient, and we see that all over the world. That agriculture is not as productive as it could be because of human abuse. I've heard some things regarding the massive earthquake in Port-au-Prince. The, the millions of people who died was not a result of natural means, but because of improper uh, irrigation and building construction, etc. Well, for example, uh, I live in Southern California, and uh, we get earthquakes all the time. And because we do, they have building codes. And so uh, our homes are designed to withstand a magnitude seven earthquake with no damage. Mm. And bigger buildings in magnitude eight. Uh, but many parts of the world, a magnitude five earthquake has huge destruction right. because of the fact that uh, the buildings. I mean, what's that what would Jesus be an example said? of the ground being cursed because yeah. of you, you're not taking care of the ground. Or what Jesus said, you know, build your house on a rock, not on the sand. 
Then how do you explain, though, back to the model? Like Darwin had a problem with, I'm not sure specifically the reference name. It was, it was a type of um, a worm that would burl itself into the eye or into the body of a, a yeah. bovine and eat the flesh and kill the brain. He said that type of um, uh, suffering at the animal level makes me doubt the wonder of the benevolence of God. Well, he's where Darwin made the mistake is wondering, okay, is there some higher good to the evil and suffering we're experiencing in this realm? And, you know, before Adam and Eve uh, sinned in the Garden of Eden, they were not experiencing evil. Right. Uh, but they chose to rebel, and uh, then evil came into the world. But there is something that Adam and Eve did not have before they sinned that we who are followers of Jesus Christ today have. They did not have eternal security. Okay. And God's goal was that we would be able to enter into a realm where there would be no evil and suffering, but we would retain our free will and our capacity to love and actually have our free will uh, much magnified over what we can express right now. But the only way that could be done so that we would not use free will for evil intent is that we had already passed the most challenging test in the context of evil. I mean, you're a professor. Uh, you know, we got doctoral degrees. The doctoral degree I have guarantees that never again will I have to be tested for my competency in astrophysics. And it's based on the idea uh -huh. I've been subjected to the most difficult test, so there's no point testing me again. Notice who God invited into the Garden of Eden. He invited Satan, mm. which meant that Adam and Eve were now had the opportunity, if I could use that word, to be exposed to the most challenging tests in the context of evil. Because he's the most powerful being that God made, the most intelligent being that God made. And so if we can pass the test of being exposed to that greatest challenge, there's no greater test that can ever challenge us again. And notice the only people that get to go into the new creation and be with God for eternity are those humans that have been exposed to the most challenging tests and have passed that test. And if I could add one more analogy, when I was a graduate student at the University of Toronto, okay. freshman class, very first few days, mm -hmm. the professor sat down with us and said, you 13 are the cream of the crop. This is the best university in Canada. And you know, we chose you as the cream. But we're going to take you through a program that's so difficult and so challenging, you're not going to pass unless you get our help. But our offices are open. You're graduate students. We're going to give you top priority. You can come to us anytime for help. Now, of the 13 of us, only seven of us got a PhD. Mm -hmm. Six did not. And several of those six did not get the help they needed from those professors, so they didn't make it. The difference in Christianity is God offers us the same thing. He says, I'm putting you through a test that's way too difficult to pass on your own, but I'm here to help. And if you come to me for help, I guarantee that you'll pass this most difficult test. My professors didn't give me a guarantee. They gave me an offer, but no guarantee. God gives us an offer and a guarantee that if we come to him for help, we will pass. But he also gives us an anti-guarantee. If you don't come to me for help, you're going to fail. There's no way you're going to pass on your own. And you believe that God strategically created this world and each and every one of us 
to navigate these waters of life to a point where we realize we cannot pass this test. Exactly. At that point, we can look up and reach out. Exactly. But there are so many who are not reaching out. Well, there are so many who think they can do it without God's help. Just like some of my fellow students at the University of Toronto, they said, you know, I'm smart, yeah. I work hard, mm -hmm. I know the professors have made this offer, I don't need their help, I can do it on my own. This connects to then the question of the world religions that you discussed right. earlier, where it's us reaching God or climbing the ladder, or the proverbial ladder to heaven ourselves. Right. I will reach heaven on my own, my own That's good where Christianity is unique. The other religions say you can do it through your own human effort. Mm -hmm. Christianity says the only way you're going to make it is if you come to God for what you can't do for yourself. Mm. So that's a unique feature. Okay. Um, and, you know, that's it basically explains why God made the universe the way he did. I believe he made it in advance with the idea that we were going to be exposed to evil by the hand of the most powerful being who is evil, namely Satan. Okay. But God in advance has already designed the universe in anticipation and designed it with the physics that would make it possible to efficiently redeem billions of us in a very short period of time. That leads me to a question. Um, I'm getting closer to the time. But the problem in philosophical theology is called the hiddenness of God. Hmm. Or in, maybe even in evolutionary biology, you can answer the question of the problem of evil and suffering in the, in the, in the animal realm, or human realm. Um, this creates a barrier to that reach. This is a blockage. Uh, for others to see beyond that. Help people who are listening to this in your own journey or the people you've done this. You've done this ministry for a number of, couple decades now? Yes. Yeah. How do they get past that pain, that suffering, that, um, that blockage, intellectual, psychological, existential blockage to see the hand above them reaching to them? Well, I think it's different for the believer than the unbeliever. Okay. for the believer, God says, I'm going to take you through more suffering mm. than when you were not a believer. That's very but what you're going to yeah, very encouraging. <laughs> uh, but Paul and Peter both add, what yeah. you're going to see as God brings more suffering into your life is how God uses that suffering for a higher good. Okay. And that's going to bring you overwhelming joy as you see God using the suffering in your life for a much higher good. And it illustrates a principle. God designed this whole universe with a higher good in mind. And that includes even the way he designed gravity and electromagnetism and thermodynamics. How is that? Okay. Well, notice all these laws of physics mm -hmm. guarantee that everything is going to decay. Yes. Everything's decaying. In fact, Romans talks Second about how the whole universe is subject to this pervasive law of decay. Mm -hmm. But that pervasive law of decay guarantees that the more sin you and I commit, the more work we're going to have to do to undo the damage of that sin and evil. I have a long the way to go. The more pain that we're going to experience and the more time we're going to waste. Okay. And because of the laws of physics, uh, we are biologically in this situation where none of us enjoys extra pain, extra work, and wasted time. So the laws of physics are basically motivating us to avoid evil and mm -hmm. pursue virtue and the process discovered, we can't do it on our own. We need external help. But as we look at the creation, we realize whoever created this must be a very powerful being and must be a very loving being for all the provision that he's provided and all the beauty he's built into it. I think I'm going to go to him for what I can't do for myself. 
I mean, and you actually see this in the book of Job. Before there was any scripture, Job looked at nature and put all the pieces together and even was able to declare the assurance of his salvation based on what he saw in nature. It is fascinating to me in the book of Job, I was reading this in my devotions the other day, Dr. Ross. Job says, though he slay me, yet shall I trust him. Exactly. But then I read the next verse. It said, yet shall I question him. That to me is very encouraging because I see that in Job. I see that in Daniel. I see that in King David. They were not afraid to go to God with the tough questions. And they recognized there's no one else who's going to give me answer to these questions. And they were patient. They were okay waiting years to get the answers that they wanted. Mm. And they persisted, which is why God called these individuals men after his own heart. Because they persisted. They persisted. Uh, they weren't afraid of asking the tough questions. Mm. And I think that's something I want to encourage with believers is we need to be engaged in vigorous debate over the tough issues of life. And this is going to please God as he sees us doing this. And one thing we're going to discover, we're going to have a lot of fun and joy <laughs> in coming up with answers or yeah. even semi-answers. So. so I went through a dark period in my life where I lost my son. Uh, the volcanic ash, suffering, existential crisis, overwhelmed me. I had the intellectual answers, but I didn't have the existential connection to draw the two. It took me right. time to connect exactly. what I believed in my head to what I knew in my heart. When I started drawing that connection, I found real life, more productivity, more redemption for me and my family. But it probably took you time, right? <laughs> it was a while. Yeah. It was a while. Draw that connection, then you said the believer. Let's do it to the person who is on the edge. They don't know if there's a God. We have a the growing number of nuns, specifically in the Midwest region, is exponentially growing. Last I checked the numbers on the Pew Research. People are not sure. They, I don't know if there's a creator. I don't know if there's a purpose for my life. Uh, Pascal said the purpose of life and others uh, is to seek happiness. Everyone seeks it. No matter who you are, whether you're robbing a bank or getting married, the ultimate goal is to seek happiness. But someone like Kant would say no, is to find duty. And in your duty, you find true peace. Where do you think the meaning of life is drawn there for the unbeliever to find, or the people who doesn't well, know to you find that connection He said that the problem of human beings is we are distracted. Yes. And I think the reason why we're seeing such an exponential rise in nuns today, mm -hmm. the opportunities for distraction in the 21st century are orders of magnitude greater than what they were in Pascal's day. Yes. And so this is the principle of the Sabbath, in my opinion. Take out regular time from your busy life to focus on the most important issues of life. But when you've got the computer, when you've got cell phone, mm -hmm. when you've got video games, when you've got all this wealth, right. it's so easy just not to think about to that. Stop. And so it's like, wait a minute, no, on a regular basis, spend some time thinking about the most important issues of life. And it doesn't mean you go to church on a Sunday. Mm -hmm. That means, yes, go to a church on a Sunday, but spend that time at church engaging the most important issues of life. And as a pastor, I'm often critical of my fellow pastors in saying, your sermons really don't do that. Mm. Now, you need to be challenging people to think about things they haven't thought about before. Don't just give them stuff that they've already heard for decades. You know, give them something that's really going to challenge them to wrestle with deep problems and deep questions. And give them a chance to challenge you and debate you. 
Because that's what God wants. He right. wants us to wrestle with a lot of these big questions. I always wonder when I talk to believers, I ask them, what challenges are you going through in reading the scriptures? And they tell me none. So are you reading the same Bible? Exactly. <laughs> are you living the same human life I'm living? I'm wondering with that, with that regard of how, um, how people can make it through without engaging or touching on the tough topics. Uh, because by avoiding them, we're in more trouble later on. Well, I think one way we can discover where we are committing that avoidance, engage non-believers. If you spend a lot of time engaging non-believers and challenging them to consider the claims of Christianity, mm -hmm. the big questions are going to come up. They're going to challenge you with stuff that you probably haven't thought of and say, right. i got to go back to the Bible and see if I can get an answer to this question I'm getting from my non-Christian skeptical friend. Okay. So... Uh, I want to wrap wrap this interview up. I know my um, my my six day creationist friends are going to get upset if I don't ask you this, <laughs> so I'm going to ask you. The, um, there are committed believers, especially in the Creation Institute and others, um, who argue that the text of Scripture, specifically in the Genesis model, is not to be read completely figuratively. It's not fully historical either, but to buy into um, a model that says that the six-day creation set forward in Genesis, sunrise to sunset, and indicated later on in Exodus, where God speaks about the, um, uh, the days set across are made as an example for us, so we can take a break, so we can, as you mentioned, make that Sabbath. God himself made the Sabbath himself, as right. an indication. Uh, and drawing that back to the creation model, the six days, they argue that these are not literal, these are figurative, not non-figurative 24-hour days, and you're arguing that they're not. Uh, as summarized as you can, as, in a summary fashion as you can, excuse me, why do you continue to hold to that model in light of all the uh, criticisms that are coming at you in your ministry? Well, I'll be really issue? clear. I am comfortable signing a doctrinal statement. I believe God created in six literal days. What do you mean by that? Because the Hebrew word yom is translated as day has four distinct literal definitions. And my young earth friends agree with me on this. It can mean part of the daylight hours, all of the daylight hours, a 24-hour period, or a long but finite period of time. But when I first picked up a Genesis at age 17, I noticed that this word day in the English text is used in three different ways. Creation day one is contrasting days and nights. That's the word day for the daylight hours. Creation day four, it's contrasting seasons, days, and years. That's day is 24 hours. But Genesis 2-4 uses the word day to refer to the entirety of creation history. So that's day is a long, finite period of time. So even without any knowledge in Hebrew, I realize there's got to be at least three distinct literal definitions. The other thing I notice is that the first six days uh, are described as having an evening and a morning. And, you know, I wasn't aware of what the Hebrew words for evening and morning meant when I was 17, but this is the minimum. It's telling us each day has a start point and an end point. But I noticed there was no evening-morning phrase for the seventh day. Mm, it's not there. No. And then I read on into the Bible mm. and found three texts that either directly declare or imply we're still in God's seventh day. Psalm 95, John 5, and Hebrews 4. And when I saw that, it answered for me an enigma that had plagued me since I was 10 years of age. Mm. What happened when I was 10 
my parents got worried that I was being obsessive about astronomy and physics. Okay. I don't know why. I was only reading five books a week on physics and That's astronomy. <laughs> and so they bought our family this big, thick book on evolutionary biology. Uh -huh. I was the only one in the family that read it. Mm. But I told my parents, Mom, Dad, the numbers don't add up. Mm. We have all the speciation before humanity and hardly any afterwards. Tell me why. They said, go ask your science teachers. My science teacher said, go talk to those professors you know. They didn't have any answer. But I picked up Genesis 1. For six days God creates. On the seventh day he stops. Mm. It answered the fossil record enigma. The reason we see so much speciation before humanity, those are the days when God creates. The reason why we see so little today, God has ceased from his work of creation to focus on his work of redemption. And to that's me, that's the pattern of the Sabbath. Well, that's amazing. You yeah. stop your regular work and focus on something uh, that is different that's and more significant. Transcendent. Be right. still and know that I am As not. far as uh, executive or Exodus 20 goes, yes. I believe it's an analogy, not an equation. Mm. I think the proof of that is, notice when you look at the rest of the Torah, mm -hmm. there's more than one Sabbath, period. Yes. We have a 24-hour period for humans. Mm -hmm. We have a whole year for the agricultural land. The, the agricultural land is also to obey a Sabbath. Work it for six years, rest it for a seventh year. And the reason why is the agricultural land is a different biology than we human beings. What about God's biology? Well, God doesn't have any biological limitations. And therefore, his Sabbath period doesn't have to be a year, doesn't have to be 24 hours, it could be anything. The principle of the Sabbath is six and one. You work six, you rest one. And on that rest period, you focus on the most significant issues of life. Okay. And I think you see that again illustrated in Romans 14, where Paul says, hey, if you make your Sabbath day Sunday, mm -hmm. fine, make it Saturday, make it any day of the week, as long as it's six and one. And so that's what people, I think, are overlooking. Instead of focusing on the period of time, mm -hmm. We need to focus on the pattern of six and one. Okay. And maybe we in America are wrong when we have five and two. <laughs> so <laughs> maybe, yeah. <laughs> wow. Let me um, let me wrap this up and ask you a final question. But before I do that, I just want to commend you. I've seen the discussions and the fiery debates online regarding the uh, the, the creation models. Uh, I want to commend you on the way you have approached it with integrity and with honor. Well, thank you, and I think that's a Christian principle. It's how we divide that's important. Both Paul and Peter made the point, we are going to divide. But watch out. The non-Christian world is watching, watching. us yeah. to see how we engage one another in our divisions. And, and the vitriol engage, is unacceptable. If it's vitriol, they're, gonna, they're not going to talk to us. So, so I, I'm, that's yeah. something I am I'm respecting you on, and I'm, well, I'm honoring you. you for it. The final question is this. You're not just a theist. You're not just a believer in God. You are a Christian. Mm -hmm. Christ is your model and Messiah is the center of your life and your being and your ministry. Why him as opposed to every other model? There are many Messiah figures, world religious leaders that we could follow. Yeah, well, I mean, I think you've answered it. I mean, there are many other Messiah figures, but there's only one that demonstrated perfect morality. I mean, the fact that Jesus was able to say in front of his mother and his brothers and sisters, uh, I'm without sin, mm. and he agreed with them. 
I mean, there's no way my mother's going to agree with me about make that kind of a claim. But they agreed that he had no sin. And then he was the one who raised himself bodily from the dead. I mean, no other Messiah figure has done that. No other Messiah figure fulfilled all the biblical prophecies mm -hmm. of the Messiah. Although I do say to my Jewish friends, you know, you're right. He only fulfilled 109 prophecies, and the Old Testament has 323. Mm -hmm. But in your religion, you believe that Elijah comes twice. Why can't the Messiah come twice? Mm. But the very fact that he fulfilled 109, that's quite impressive. Right. And a lot of those 109 are way beyond his control or the control of his disciples. Mm -hmm. So this has got to be the one who your Old Testament predicts. And what I do with a lot of my Jewish friends is take them to Psalm 22. Because okay. Psalm 22, written by King David a thousand years before the event, describes in detail how the Messiah would suffer and die on a cross. And what impresses me, this is hundreds of years before crucifixion was even invented. And mm. Psalm 22 describes in detail this crucifixion event. Even the piercing. Yeah. Even the piercing and even the words of mockery that would be thrown at him oh, are right there in the text. Yeah. And it explains why the centurion, the Roman centurion, said, surely this is the Son of God. I think that centurion knew Psalm 22. Because hmm. when you read the Gospels, notice what Jesus says on the cross. His opening words are, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's Psalm 22, verse 1. The last thing he says before he dies, it is finished. That's the last verse of Psalm 22. So hmm. I think there's an implication there that he was reciting the psalm as he was dying on the cross. And I think that's why it had such a dramatic impact on the Roman centurion. Because he comes back. We can come back too. We can we have come back too, yeah. The fact that he yeah. raised himself from the dead means he can do the same for us. Amen. Dr. Ross, thank you for your time. Very welcome. Very welcome. All right.